Hi listeners and welcome to the Learning Podcast. This episode is about mathematics and the role math plays in our lives. A topic that I have pondered for a long time but can't remember hearing much about. I'm curious about how the language of mathematics helps us push the boundaries of what we know and understand things that are abstract or just less intuitive, like quantum physics. I'm also curious about teaching and learning mathematics. Already in primary school, we learn how to express quantities with numbers and perform mathematical operations, such as addition and subtraction, with plus and minus symbols. We tell kids that math is an important subject that will help them get good jobs and manage their money. The math during my later school years felt very technical and more like a competition than useful knowledge. There was a strange focus on speed and talent in the math classroom that I didn't experience elsewhere. I got the impression that math was a solo endeavor where working through the textbooks and exercises as quickly as possible was the goal. It was allowed, even applauded, to be far ahead of the rest of the class. I cannot remember any real conversations about the increasingly abstract math we were working on, and it seemed that context wasn't important. It was not until years later, when I studied physics and engineering at university, that I realized that nearly everything was expressed and taught through math. Understanding and solving the problems we worked on was all done with math. Mathematics is the language that all my professors relied on for discussing their courses, concepts and problems. Even though I eventually got sufficiently fluent in mathematics, I never stopped thinking about the common image of math as something that's purely technical, very difficult and almost mysterious. To help me make sense of this, I've invited Stephen Ryan, professor in mathematics at University of Saskatchewan in Canada. Stephen has a PhD in mathematics from the University of Oxford and was a postdoc at the University of Toronto before joining the University of Saskatchewan in 2016. Stephen is a mathematician who is influenced in large part by physics. He works a lot with other disciplines and in particular with physicists in quantum science and technology. Stephen leads University of Saskatchewan's signature area in quantum in innovation, and is also the director of Quanta, the university's quantum center. Stephen is also a much appreciated teacher and educator who has a knack for making complex concepts in math and physics accessible to audiences broadly. He recently gave a TEDx talk about the mathematics and art behind quantum magic. I'm very lucky to have Stephen as a guest in this episode. Hello, Steve, and welcome to the Learning Podcast. Hi, Anna. Thanks for having me. So as it happens, we're recording this on April 14th, which is also the World Quantum Day. Uh, how are you celebrating? Oh, well... Um, I'm definitely celebrating in a, in a few different ways. Well, I guess one is this podcast, which I, I think will be a lot of fun, at least for me. Um, another is that our Department of Mathematics and Statistics here at University of Saskatchewan is having its graduation banquet tonight. And I think there's no better way to celebrate World Quantum Day than seeing another cohort of bright young minds ready to change the world with their mathematical thinking. Excellent. Yeah, I hope you have a nice evening then. Ooh. Um, when and why did you become interested in mathematics? That's a good question. Well, I'm not sure I've ever been interested in math for its own sake, even though I'm a professor of mathematics. That might sound like a, a funny comment, but in truth, I'm really just interested in why things work. My relationship to mathematics has been one of skepticism, actually. When I was young, I got on board just fine with things like counting, addition, subtraction. I understood what it meant to add two numbers together or take a quantity away. I also understood what it meant to multiply two numbers. Three times four means I'm going to take three groups of four. And so it's really just addition. I'm going to add four together a total of three times to get 12. And what I couldn't get on board with uh, was um, 
how, how they were telling us in school to multiply larger numbers together, like 12 times 16. You know, to me, 12 times 16 still meant 12 groups of 16. And that's, of course, exactly what it is. But teachers started telling us to put one number on top of the other and multiply the six by the individual digits in the 12. And then you carry the one, and then you make a second row and you do it again, and you add the rows together. I mean, consider consider what I just said. I mean, as adults, we we hear all this and think, what on earth is going on here? Imagine having to accept that as, as, as children. Uh, there's a reason why this trick for multiplying multi-digit numbers works, but teachers rarely, if ever, at least in my, my prior experience in life, would explain this to kids. They just do it and they say, okay, now repeat what I did. And then the recipe for long division, okay, don't even get me started. That, that irked me for a long time. I, I couldn't accept these things and I just needed to know why 12 groups of 16, which is what 12 times 16 means, is the same as doing all of these motions with the individual digits and carrying the one and all that. So I started dissecting the mathematics pretty early on, really just to know what was going on. And, it, and admittedly, I didn't trust my teachers very much at that stage. If any of them are listening, I'm so sorry. It's not you, it's me. Um, it wasn't until high school that I started uh, to find mentors who knew why um, things worked, um, you know, sort of under the hood in mathematics, uh, or at least, at least we're, we're willing to explain, you know, why things worked in mathematics. And there's some risk there because there's some risk for the teacher because you might be wrong in how you explain things. So I, I get that too. You know, I, it could be very well that, you know, the, the teachers I had very early in life understood these things, but, but maybe were hesitant about explaining it in, in a way that, that wouldn't resonate or was, was, you know, somewhat incorrect. And, you know, you are performing for an audience when you're a teacher. So I, I very much appreciate that. Um, but yeah, in high school, you know, I, I got to find mentors who knew why the things worked and were able to explain it in a way that, that appealed to me. Uh, they refused to teach rules and recipes uh, without explaining first why they worked. And uh, this really connected with the way I was already thinking from, from a young age. This desire to get to the bottom of why things work uh, isn't the only reason why I'm a mathematician today. I, I would say the power of mathematics and other pursuits, such as physics, also pushed me in this direction. But my earliest connection to math definitely originated in my dissatisfaction with how mathematics is, is taught and my desire to fix that, at least for myself. And, and I try to channel that into my, into my own teaching. So you're a math uh, professor of mathematics uh, at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, on a typical day at work, what what do you do? Yeah, you know, during a typical day uh, for me at work, any number of things might happen. You know, no two days are the same. You know, certainly I could be teaching lectures in, in math or making course content, assignments, other material. But I do spend a large chunk of time doing mathematical research, um, whether it's it's in pure mathematics or connected to problems in other disciplines hard to quantify the time spent here or even where I'm spending it. So, you know, when I'm doing research, I'm somehow highly delocalized. I could be at the chalkboard in my office or a chalkboard in an empty classroom. Sometimes I need to go to a larger room because the amount of space around me, the geometry of the room affects how I think. Different rooms give me different ideas. Um, sometimes I'm scribbling mathematics down on notepads at a coffee shop on campus. And I don't want to give the impression that this is solitary work. It's a great deal of math research that is personal and in, in one's head, but I also spend many hours per week with, with undergraduate, masters, and PhD students who I mentor. They develop their own mathematical research and perspectives. I try to inspire them and give them clues about how to advance their work. In the process, though, they inspire me. I'm also researching in many countries at once. I have collaborators who are just a, a Zoom call away, and, you know, any any of these things could happen on, on any given day in, in my life. It sounds as if it's um, a social form of work. It is. It, it's, it's uh, again, on, on the one hand, very personal. I think, you know, mathematicians have very individual ways of thinking about the world and their work, the mathematics, how it connects to, to other parts of mathematics or to everyday experience but we're constantly reshaping one another's thoughts. We, we encounter another mathematician, again, whether it's a student who I'm mentoring or, or a mentor of mine, you know, from an earlier part in my, in my life, or, or even just someone I've met at a conference, just no prior connection, but almost certainly 
the mathematical conversations we have will completely change my outlook on on the discipline and 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 where it's going for me. I find you know constantly constantly these discussions the social aspect of mathematics is is transformative um and I think that's that's something that people would find surprising about mathematics that that is so social that you know we can, we need to go out and find another mathematician talk to them about the mathematics we're doing and aha now now I have a completely new way to think about this and it's going to change everything I do these kind of aha moments these eureka moments stemming from conversation are happening all the time so you you work frequently with uh, with scientists in other fields, and why are scientists uh, broadly, you know, in in fields other than mathematics, speaking math all the time? Because this is my impression. Mm. That's a that's a lovely question, Anna. And um, there is something almost surprising here. You know, when you ask this question, I I have to think immediately about uh, a famous a famous article it was uh, written or at least published in 1960 by by a physicist by the name of Eugene Wigner who was a key figure in actually in the development of quantum science he wrote a paper called the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences in the paper he writes uh, something uh, along the lines of um, the incredible or the enormous usefulness of, of math in, in the natural sciences or the physical sciences is something bordering on the mysterious and that there is no rational explanation for it. And that, that last part of the quote, I'm, I'm very sure about in my, in my mind because it, it keeps resonating with me. You know, part of this, I think, is our, is our nature. We measure things and that involves numbers. You know, we want to know how fast something is moving, how much something has grown or shrunk. We have goals in life that can be expressed numerically. You know, it'll, it'll be optimal if we have this much yield from our efforts. So we make our lives numerical in these ways. But what's impressive and what I think Wigner is getting at is that these numbers behave according to mathematical rules and principles that we wouldn't expect are governing things behind the scenes. Like for example, you know, we, if we apply a force to an object, you know, if you lean on it, you push it, it might start moving. In fact, it's, it's accelerating. Its speed, which is part of what we call velocity, that's speed and direction, is changing. It's gone from moving to some non-zero speed. So there's a qualitative relationship that you can already sense right there between force and acceleration. So it's, it's reasonable then to wonder, hey, how much force do you need to apply to something to get a certain acceleration? So you might find ways to measure force and, and acceleration. So these become numbers now. Okay, this, I observed that this much force leads to this much acceleration. Now, what's amazing is that for everyday objects, when you compare the force to the acceleration as numbers in the right units, um, just to inject some of the reality there, you know, we, you're measuring things in, in various, various units. But in any case, when you compare the force to the acceleration as numbers, then, then the force is always equal to the acceleration multiplied by another number. And that number doesn't depend on the force you apply or the acceleration you're trying to achieve. That, that number only depends on the object itself. And we call that the mass of the object. This is actually one way to define what we mean by mass or, or weight. It's actually amazing that there should be a concise relationship between force and acceleration that's mathematical and can be consistently applied. If you know that number, the mass of the object, then the amount of force you need uh, to apply to achieve that acceleration is the acceleration times the mass. So this is one of Newton's laws of motion, and it's really just multiplication. So there is multiplication, you know, appearing in nature. Controlling the motion of a car, for instance, would not be possible without this kind of knowledge. And working with this knowledge in a precise and predictable way becomes multiplying two numbers in math. I'm oversimplifying, you know, in, in many ways, but I think this is a good passage between something physical in the world we're interested in and the mathematics that happens to control it for reasons that are maybe no less mysterious in 2023 than in Wigner's time in 1960 or Newton's time in the late 1600s. So math is actually, um, it is a way of describing the world around us. Certainly, certainly. I think it, it helps to describe the world. It helps to interact with the world in a 
in a predictable way. You know, you can just let the world happen, but that's often not what we're trying to do in life. I mean, sometimes like just just let everything happen. Just just you know, um, just let let things just sort of you know move past you, and and what will happen is what will happen. And you know, that's probably a good philosophy for for uh, you know living a living a good and happy life. But uh, but it's uh, we're not people who necessarily take our own advice. And we're always trying to control the outcome of things. Again, we want that that particular yield. We want to grow things. You know, the economy has to grow. We want a certain yield for this company. Um, you know, we're trying to engineer things. The moment you say engineer something, that means you're trying to do something in a controlled way, whether it's an outcome or whether it's it's a, it's a product that we're manufacturing, a bridge that we're making. There's a lot of things that are happening in life around us that we're trying to control and we and control is important you know sometimes control is a negative word but it but also you know if you build a bridge you want to know that it doesn't collapse so you need to control the outcome in a sense all of these things end up being numerical in, in kind of the same way that i was speaking about earlier and you know when you reduce things to numbers then you know achieving those outcomes those those controlled and predictable things that becomes mathematical manipulations of those numbers. So again, it kind of goes full circle in what I'm saying back to, you know, we make, we make our lives mathematical by needing to know how things will turn out, you know, sometimes just, just for our own protection. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, a bridge is not just a convenience. You know, it, it, there's a lot of engineering that goes into it to make sure that it doesn't collapse. And the only way it doesn't collapse um, is, is knowing about all of these, uh, these laws of physics, Newton's laws, that eventually at the end of the day are, you know, multiplication and addition. So we cannot escape mathematics in our lives. And um, and we, we really ought to know how to use it if we're going to, you know, um, achieve convenience in a safe way. Well put. So um, uh, let, let's go back to the abstract mm -hmm. uh, concepts in, in physics, say. Can we take a, an example of a concept or a phenomenon in physics, which is abstract, but well understood mathematically? Something to talk about here. Uh, what would you suggest? Sure, sure. There's a few things that come to mind. I mean, one in the sense we just discussed, which is a little bit more classical, is, is one of Newton's laws of motion. But if we want to sort of get more into the 20th and 21st centuries, you know, a good one is uh, just maybe remark briefly, maybe be remiss not to talk about e equals mc squared. Uh, you know, this is probably the most famous equation in existence. And yes. maybe it's it's somehow to the disappointment of, of mathematicians that that a famous equation shouldn't come just from mathematics, but has to come by way of physics. Um, you know, as, as a as a mathematician who who really is influenced by physics? I, I also identify as a mathematical physicist. Uh, that's no, that's no, no problem, no issue. I personally have no issue with that, but I can, I can see some, some umbrage maybe from, from other corners, you know, of, of mathematics. But um, you know, e equals mc squared is an interesting case study there because famous equation, you know, people the world over have heard of it. It and it has, you know, two you know, it, it, it has a really nice, concise expression. You know, it, it's saying that energy E uh, is equal to, to mass. That's that, that, uh, that same number we were talking about earlier um, involved in Newton's equation. So mass times, here's multiplication again. Multiplication is, is, is on show again in, in, a, in a law of physics. You know, times this additional number C squared, which has to do with the speed of light. And this is a really interesting equation because again it's it's concise it's it's um it's easy to write down it, it only involves three letters a number and an equal sign um so as far as uh you know it, it's not one of those blackboard filling equations that you see in movies um so it's 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 easy to say even if we don't um necessarily have an appreciation of what the individual letters are for in this equation but you know looking under the you know a little bit under the surface here at at those letters this equation is is powerful because it's saying that energy on the one side, one kind of physical quantity, and mass or matter on the other side have an equivalence. That a certain amount of matter or mass is um, 
is is related in a in a fundamental way, you know, by, by one of these mathematical laws to the amount of energy that's stored in that matter, and that that you know you cannot have one without the other, you know, um, if 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 all of a sudden the matter part, the mass part in your equation becomes zero, then on the other side of the equation the energy part becomes zero as well. So you cannot have matter without energy is what the equation is saying. So, so here's a, a mathematical equation with, with powerful implications about how nature works. So it's, it's a really, that's a really great example. And there are other things as well that, that we can sort of uh, pick up on in, in the intersection between say 20th century mathematics and, and physics, quantum physics, um, if, if you like, you know, we, um, you know, if we think about everyday objects, you know, something you might be interested in, you know, going, maybe going back to our discussion of motion, you know, you might be interested in, in knowing the position of an object at a given moment and it's, it's velocity. Again, it's kind of speed and, and direction. You know, those might be, you know, depending on, on what you're interested in. Again, it could be a car, you know, you, you could be tracking a car for some reason. You want to know its position. You also want to know how, how fast it's going and in which direction it's going in. So, um, when you could just be, you could be the driver of that car, um, you know, could be on, there's, there's two different roles here, you know, let's, 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 uh, let's hope you're not doing something that means that, that people need to <laughs> track where you, where you are in, in real time. Uh, you know, that's, that's a different discussion maybe, but in any case, there's reasons why you might want to know the position of something, why you might want to know the velocity of something. And, you know, you could, you could say that, you know, maybe I'll try and Keep track of the position first and then and then worry about the velocity or maybe i'll do it in the other order oh okay i'm going to look at the at the speedometer and then i'm going to figure out where i am i mean it's not a discussion you usually have with yourself because in a sense it doesn't matter you know at least these two things uh, are are you know, more or less uh, the order in which you do these things is is not something that usually makes a difference yeah you know i was careful to say for everyday objects but when you when you look under the under the surface of nature and you start looking at the tiniest particles that make up nature this this concern starts becoming a reality you know measuring position and then velocity or measuring velocity and then position might lead to different outcomes different readings actually for your your uh, you know some the quantum particle that's moving you know like a, like an electron some some tiny quantum car let's say you know that's that's you know microscopically moving through 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 matter through some material and you're trying to keep track of this you measure the position first and then the velocity you measure the velocity first and then the position might lead to different outcomes and you know one way to think about that um is you know if you're if you're moved just just think about you know moving in a city you know if you go two blocks west and then three blocks south you know, you, you hope that if you go three blocks south and then two blocks west, you would end up in the same spot. But what we're saying is that in the quantum world, that might not happen. And, um, you, you know, that's, that's one, of the, um, one of the interesting um, sort of things that we understand um, well mathematically, but it's kind of a, an, an abstract co uh, concept. We actually have an equation, a very concise equation that describes this, uh, this uh, we call the lack of commutativity, this, this, uh, this effect uh, at a quantum level of, of you know, doing, doing two different processes in, in two different orders might lead to a different outcome. So this is, this is something that, uh, this is an idea that would have been, I think, very difficult to develop and understand even though we can talk about it in a very conceptual way, again, about, you know, two blocks west and three blocks south versus, you know, three blocks south and two blocks west, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, after the fact, you can come up with pretty good conceptual explanations or illustrations, analogies for these things. But the actual development of the idea at a quantum level, which really is essential to understanding how quantum physics works, how these, how these quantum particles behave, and then how we can leverage them in applications, would not be really possible without without the mathematics here. So there's a, there's a mathematical equation which is maybe not quite as simple as e equals mc squared that that uh, that you know describes this departure from commutativity, which I'm sort of purposely not saying. I'm just focusing on the on the analogies here. But uh, it's it's definitely an instance in which the the mathematics um, has helped develop the physics. And, and it's like the spectacular applications like, uh, like, you know, 
um, MRI machines, for instance. Um, you know, these are quant this is really quantum tech that we depend on in a way that we don't necessarily, um, you know, think about in every in everyday terms. Like, oh, here's here's quantum technology that's saving lives, but it is. And it depends. It depends, you know, secretly on on these equations that um, that I'm talking about that that apply at at the quantum level. Mm. So so yeah, there's there's a lot of examples that one can draw upon. But I, I think um, maybe these these two things, you know, E equals M C squared, and and this uh, this uh, you know dependence on order, this lack of commutativity, and 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 it. It's mathematical. It's a mathematical idea that manifests physically. I think these are these are good examples of um, you know, concepts in, in in nature that that become sort of rapidly mathematical, but which which it's for which their physical and 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 their physical implications uh, are somehow you know really I would say we don't get a full appreciation for them without the mathematics. What is that? Do you have a name for the equation if, you know, in the uncertainty at the quantum level? Yeah, yeah. so it's it, that equation I was referring to is called the, the, the commutator relation, the fundamental commutator relation. It goes, it goes under a few different names, but, but usually containing commutator relation as, as, as a couple of words in there. And, uh, and I think you, you hinted at this, and I think that comes from some of your own experience in, in math and, and physics, but uh, that the un, the so-called uncertainty principle in in quantum physics uh, is a consequence of this uh, of this equation that I was referring to and this this lack of commutativity. So take take one or both of those equations. Um, how complicated is the math? That's a say? yeah. It's a great question. I think that. Um, an analogy that that is perhaps important here is is language itself. You know, one could say, you know, if if, uh, if we have no, you know, very little prior experience, you know, speaking speaking a language, then, you know, there could be ideas that are simple to express in that language, but because we we've rarely, you know, we we haven't really learned it properly, we haven't really, uh, you know, gone through, you know. However many grades of, of learning that one needs to do to um, to get uh, you know experience with that language, it becomes very difficult to to um, see the the simplicity in the statements that are being being made. Um, and I think that that's that's very much the case for for mathematics. I, I really think that learning mathematics is just learning a language. It's it's a language that involves symbols, but but so is any language. The letters of a language are its symbols, and then they get strung together to make words and sentences, and then we learn to to infer meaning from those words. You know, words on a page are just you, you know you, you see the you see the word um, you know um, session on a page or or the word connection on a page, just picking random words. I mean, they're just random strings of letters, but it has meaning for us. You see the word connection. And all of a sudden, all kinds of ideas pop into your mind. It's the same thing with 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 mathematics and with these these equations. They're written in a particular language. It might be a language that one doesn't have much experience with because you know maybe they were dissatisfied at an early age with with how mathematics was unfolding for them, and so as a result, they weren't inspired to take up more of that language. But maybe if they had, then those equations would just be like the word connection. It's a word you can read and all kinds of ideas come to your mind when you see it. So I really do think that 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 math is a is a language. And perhaps, um, you know, we don't we don't have a really robust or good idea of how to teach that language. We, we might think we do. But, you know, I think that that perhaps. Uh, you know, how do we learn language, languages we speak to begin with? You know, there's there's immersion that happens from the you know first moments of our lives. And no better way of learning languages than immersion. You know, and and uh, you know that that doesn't really happen with with mathematics. Um, you know, for for many reasons. Um, you know, I I would think that you know if we if we can find a way to our, immerse ourselves positively 
in mathematics, then, you know, we pick up the language. And then again, these equations just become words, words to read, words to understand, words to be inspired by, words to, to produce mental imagery from, just as we do, just as we do the words on a page in any book. So when someone says that they understand these abstract concepts in physics, say a physicist says that, um, is, it the, is it the physics or the math that they understand? It's hmm. a great question, Anna, and I'm going to answer with the question. When someone says they're a chef, are they saying they understand the, the underlying chemistry as the in ingredients react with one another and change from heat and pressure? Or is it the broader culinary artistry arising from that chemistry that they understand? You know, they might be applied chemists without even realizing it, having learned pieces of, of, of a bigger chemical picture without ever really focusing on the fact that there's chemistry to what they do. And so understanding you know, physics concepts, quantum co concepts is, is similarly hard to silo from the mathematics. Even if one hasn't been focused overtly on the mathematics, they're still applying it, maybe even discovering new properties of that mathematics without ever really focusing on it. So... I have a, a vivid memory from my childhood oh. uh, that is uh, relevant here, I think, or I'd like to share it. It is, uh, I was in second or third grade, I believe, in primary school. Uh, we had just started to, in math, we had just started to work with negative numbers. Mm. And we were um, learning how to, how to, you know, do math with negative numbers. And we were initially working on very simple problems. So it would be like five and then plus a negative number, say minus two. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we learned that uh, the minus there sort of trumps the plus. So that is the same as five minus two, which is mm -hmm. three. It's a very simple operation. But I have these strong memories from, of feeling very confused and a bit stupid actually, because I could not understand how you can take a number, add another number, and then end up with a smaller number mm. in the end, how, how the result could be a smaller than the starting point. And, and I remember going up to my, my teacher several times up to a point where she just sighed and, and sent me back to my desk to just kind of figure it out. <laughs> and I, I, I'm not sure how long it took, but I think it was probably like a week or it was more than, it was a longer than say five minutes. I had to process this and work through this. And eventually I, I grasped it. I understood that this is, this is math, this is the language of math. Um, and then eventually it wasn't any strange at all. But um, thinking about it now, I realized that I was um, probably, this was the first encounter with more abstract math mm. for me. It was no longer about adding two, having two apples and adding two more, and then you have four. It was, you know, we were moving into more abstract operations and math. And that was something that um, took a little time for me. No, I, I really appreciate your sharing that. And I, I think that connects very well with what I was saying earlier about the things that bothered me when I was young in mathematics. And, and I think it's, it's, it's still this, this issue of you know, presenting sort of rules, recipes without the reasons for why they, they work. And that, you know, some of us just get very, very bothered, very, very irked by that. Um, you know, I think there are multiple attrition points in one's mathematical journey. You know, I'm talking about, you know, how, how can we keep people invested in, in, in learning this language of mathematics? I really do believe it's, it's, a, it's a language, you know, more than anything else. Languages have rules, by the way, you know, we, we even if they're partly invented, um, you know, when we when we compose words, we, we have uh, and, and sentences, we have grammar that governs that. 
Mathematics has a, gra a grammar that governs that. And you know, you're asking the question, why in this particular instance does the grammar unfold this way? And you know, we have to be mindful of these attrition points. You know, I, I was talking about um, you know, my, my experience uh, with, with multiplication and, and long division and those rules there. You're talking about, about the effect of, of, of minus signs in front of numbers. Uh, another attrition point is, is fractions, adding fractions. You know, if I have the fraction A over B and I want to add it to C over D, you know, uh, some some kids want to know why is that not A plus C over B plus D? Why can't I just add the top and add the bottom? Why 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 does it unfold in a in a in a way that looks much stranger than that, actually? And and I do not blame a single child who asks that question. But again, who knows what answer they get? Um and again, this is this is where 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 the instruction in math might differ from from other subjects, um, and, and another attrition point. I won't get. I won't go in. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say the word, and it's a scary word. I think for many people, logarithms. You know, if you if you, if you survive all those things early in your <laughs> mathematical life, only to face <laughs> logarithms later and get defeated again. I, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't blame you because some strange things uh, happen there. At least, at least at first glance. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and so I think we need to get a handle on these things in, in mathematics. Um, you know, we have to we have to be able to to explain these twists and turns of the language in a way that that's satisfying and 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 respects curiosity, respects the curiosity of individuals. I believe that people are innately curious. And one of the ways in which they might express that is, is in questions that we ask teachers and in, in the classroom uh, about the mathematics that they're learning. And we have to be able to give good answers. The answer can't be go back to your desk and figure it out. So why do you think that um, many still consider math to be such a difficult kind of fringe subject? Uh, given that it is at the center of so much of today's innovation and technological advancement? It's mm, a great question. You know, part of this is that people aren't aware often that math is at the center of, of innovation and technological advancement. Even take the, you forget about, about the amazing quantum technologies that are coming out, like, like uh, quantum computing. Um, you know, or, or the prior wave of quantum technologies like the MRI machines that I, I made reference to, or, or even our, our, you know, our desktop computers, by the way, are, are, aspect, are, are examples of, of quantum technology. But, but just go back to the example of the bridge. Again, bridges, you know, would not be possible um, without mathematics. But we think about it as engineering. We think about the engineers. We think about the the, um, the construction workers who come in and, and, and they play vital roles, the engineers, the other, the other workers who come in and, and fashion that, that bridge almost from nothing. And, they need, and that has to be celebrated. But there is a mathematical part that's, that we're unaware of and which is not celebrated typically in, in the general public. So there's, there's that aspect of it. We don't have a good set of examples in everyday discourse, in, in everyday life, that we can that we can just point to. They're there, they're there, like like with the bridge, but but they're not present in everyday discourse, being able to say, ah, but you see, this is what math where math is being used. Math is being used here, it's being used there, it's being used in your computer, it's being used in your fridge, being used in 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 your in your smartphone. We need to have more of those kinds of, of discussions so that people can be like, uh-huh, there's a real there's a real reason why I'm learning this math. It's not just to torture people. <laughs> it's to it's to actually um, it's, it, there's actually a, a huge benefit to it that all of these all of these and, and let's not even look towards future innovations. All of these everyday innovations that we rely upon right now would not be possible without mathematics. That that needs to be more that needs to increasingly be part of our our public discussion around mathematics. And again we have to turn math teaching from torture into something else. It has to be empowering. It has to be, it has to respond to inquisitiveness. It has to, it has to emphasize more the, the linguistic and creative aspects of the subject. And, and you, you, I think you mentioned fringe subject, like it, it has this regard, advanced mathematics is regarded in some ways, as, you know, being out there on, on the, you know, fringes of, of, of things. And, and I think that, you know, we need to, 
we need to make mathematics discussion teaching more historical you know when you learn about you know theoretical physics is just just as difficult you know just as 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 well i think all subjects are, are equally difficult when you get to their 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 frontier but i'll just pick another subject that's just nearby to me and, and that i'm invested in which is theoretical physics you know it, it has its its difficulties um, it, it has its its unsolved problems. It, it has it has its its challenges in understanding, you know, the the most advanced features of it. Um, but physics is is taught in in a historical way. I mean, people learn it in in a historical order, and and we we learn older attempts at understanding physics that have been supplanted before we learn about the newer ones. And we said, okay, you know, at this time in history, we were thinking about these physical concepts in this way. We know now today that this is not perhaps the best way of thinking about it, but this was an important step when these individuals were thinking this way. This was an important step for the next generation of thinking, which was an important step for the next generation of thinking. And in 1932, this person, this person discovered this, which led to this, to this idea five years later in 1937. And you get this, you get this feeling, oh, there are people here, human beings, flesh and blood human beings who discover physics or chemistry or biology. And, and they have names. And, and their work was, uh, you know, may have been completely supplanted by the next person's work, but you could not have had the next person's work without their work. And so there's a process of discovery and there's a partnership across years and generations. And people who didn't even know each other in different countries had influenced each other over time and space. We don't do that in mathematics. We just say, hey, here's mathematics. This is how it works. It's not like you don't get the feeling, people don't get the feeling that it's been discovered. It's been discovered and it's still being discovered. There are unanswered, open questions in mathematics that we're working on right now. We don't have all the answers, but it's painted as a subject where you have all the answers. Everything is either right or wrong and there's no history to it. It's just here, here it is uh, from on high. And, and you know, and uh, you just have to figure it out. You know, it, it, and you're, 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 um, you're a spectator, not a discoverer. Just here it is. Just figure it out. Go to your, go back to your desk. Figure it out, and and that's it. Hand in, hand in your, hand in your test. Hand in your assignment. Oh, yeah, you're right or you're wrong. You know that's, but it doesn't have to be that way. Math has been discovered over generations. There's been math that's been supplanted by other kinds of math. There's math that's still being discovered right now. And there's a lot of times where I'm sitting, you know, I'm in that big room trying to get ideas at the chalkboard, or sitting at the coffee shop scratching my mathematical notes on my paper, and be like, huh, okay. No, this doesn't work. Okay, throw the paper away. Let's start again. There's a lot of there's a lot of wrongness to get to the rightness, hmm. and and there's a lot of creativity. Like, oh, you know what? I I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe come up with a with a whole uh, today. I'm gonna come up with a whole new concept. I probably tomorrow will think that it's it's completely uh, completely irrelevant, and I'm I'm almost embarrassed that I tried to come up with it the prior day. But I'm going to take the risk, and I'm and and I'm gonna I'm gonna try it, try it out. You know, there's there's this entrepreneurial spirit to mathematics, which does not appear at all in in the way it's taught. I'm afraid to say. And that's not to say that there aren't you know mavericks out there. There aren't people who are who are changing things slowly. I don't. I'm not saying I'm one of them, but I'm, but there are people out there who are doing amazing things at every level, whether it's elementary school, secondary school, university, changing the way we teach mathematics. But but as a as a whole, as a collective, we haven't gotten there yet. But I would love to see history injected into mathematics. Show people where it came from. And then they might have the idea that that they can make their own mathematics too. Steve, thank you so much for speaking with me about mathematics. Uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me here. It's been a lot of fun. So before we go, though, we uh, we are we'll have a brainstorming session here where. Steve and I, we're going to try to come up with or agree on a, on a related problem or question that we find important, uh, but we cannot answer. Something possibly to hand over to, um, to another podcast episode and talk to someone else about that. Who right. knows? 
So I'll try to time box this at three minutes and I will kick off. Um, so um, we talked about how math is considered difficult. Uh, it's almost a subject only for people who show exceptional talent, preferably already as kids. Um, but limiting the talent and workforce pool uh, in, in this way, I mean, it will, will have an effect. Uh, I can see a large downside here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, this is an interesting, interesting thought because, and it connects with things we were saying earlier. Again, think about how much technology we have at, at, that we depend on today. So much of this is, is again, mathematical under the surface. And you know, how many people can, can, you know, sort of take apart their phone and, and not just necessarily focusing just on the mathematics here, maybe, maybe everything, the mathematics, the engineering, the principles involved. I mean, how many people can take apart their phone and understand all of the circuitry that goes into it? You know, we're creating, you know, we're creating a generation for ourselves dependent on technologies that we don't understand. Only a few, you know, you understand really how it works, can manufacture it, can repair it. I mean, there are dangers to this, you know, we, we go very far with, with this sort of way of living, this sort of way of being. I mean, you know, we might get to a, to a juncture where we're, you know, so dependent on things that very few people can maintain or understand. Mm. Um, uh, that does, that does worry me. At the same time, we're building a society or our societies increasingly rely on more and more complicated systems for, mm -hmm. for just about everything. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and um, I feel like there is a, a, a real risk here and probably we're already there, mm -hmm. um, that there is a group of people who are part of that uh, for real and can influence it. Mm -hmm. and then. There is um, the rest, essentially, who are consuming mm -hmm. it, but not, not uh, contributing or feeling that they're part of it. Well, you're, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there is the, there is the sort of democratization factor and the, you know, the, the, somehow the, the creation of, of content and platforms, tools, networks, or you know, perhaps increasingly only in the hands of a few there's major implications here, societal, um, economic, political, and, and also just, again, going back to sustainability in terms of, of the technology and how it, it supports our lives. I mean, uh, so I think that this is a, this is somehow a, a crucial, a crucial issue that, that we have no, I would say, you know, not, not even no solution for it. Maybe, maybe no, no, um, no investment in, in even really combating it yet. And again, I'm not saying that, that no one is, but I think as a society, in, in the bulk of society, we're just moving forward with this, this way of living without, without investing seriously in, in understanding the course that we've set. Mm. So I feel like there, there is probably, you can trace back to, to kind of the public understanding and perception mm -hmm. of maybe even mathematics and related uh, uh, topics here as something that would, should, should uh, receive a, probably a lot more focus or resources than it, it currently has. No, I think Is that so. A, yeah, we, have, we are already at three minutes plus. Well, Is I that a have, question? I just have two letters to add to that, AI. <laughs> AI, right. <laughs> Yes, I think it's it's uh, becoming clear to to everyone already or very soon uh, mm. that we're heading into a new era. Oh, certainly, certainly, and I think that these issues of democratization, sustainability of technology, but also even the yeah, I think I think will inter intersect very rapidly. I think they're already intersecting with the issue of of AI. I mean, mm. and it's it's. This also brings in decision-making. You know, mm -hmm. I think we're increasingly not only putting the decision-making in, in the hands of a few potentially, but also uh, putting it in, in the hands of, of 
of agents that we don't necessarily understand yet, um, artificial agents. And, and in, in, some, in, in many cases, this is with amazing and positive results, but I think that we need to understand the course that we're setting here. So democratizing the basic sciences, the underlying mm -hmm. sciences, is how to do that more yeah. and better? Is that a good question? I think it's a good question because, you know, there's this, there's, I think, again, it, it goes back to things that we were saying in, in our chat. You know, there's this talk at times of, of citizen science, you know, people, people going out and, and taking science into their own hands, um, you know, using the scientific method in, in everyday life. But, you know, it doesn't have to be in a lab. It doesn't have to be in a university. But, you know, what about what about backyard science or, you know, science that just, you know, happens out in, in the public domain? You know, we could add citizen mathematics to that. I would love to, because again, you know, you, you, you know, we were doing this when we were pushing back on the minus signs and on the on the long division, you know, trying to take that into our own hands. Um, I think I think so. There's two things here that you know we I think we can and should democratize science and mathematics by doing more of it in our own lives, immersing ourselves in it, and then we become conversant in those languages that we're afraid of. But at the same time, it also needs to happen, start happening early in life. I mean, yes, of course, you could take it up when you're 30, you take it when you're 60, you take it up when you're 85. I mean, it's, it's wonderful things. But the sooner you, one starts you know, thinking that way in life, I think the better for, for everyone. You know, so and, and we have to provide all the encouragement we can to inquisitiveness. You know, again, it, it's, it's back to, you know, do we send, send people back to their, to their desks, go figure it out? Um, you know, well, maybe the go figure out part just, just you know, is, is not as, as bad as we're sort of saying, because again, it's that, it's that bit of entrepreneurship from an early stage, but, but doing it in a positive way and a go figure it out for a bit. And I'm, I'm, I'm but I'm here to help you come back mm -hmm. to me with, with your thoughts and your findings that that's maybe the part that's really missing there. Totally agree. Mm -hmm. Thank you again, Steve, so much for, for coming on the show. Um, I, Let's see if we can pick up this question, how to democratize the mathematics and the basic sciences uh, in another episode. Definitely. It was really a, a great pleasure to be here and always happy to talk to you. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me and, and good luck for, uh, for the future episodes. Thank you so much. And happy Thank World Quantum Day. <laughs> happy World Quantum Day. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, take care. That wraps up this episode and my conversation with Stephen Ryan. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I hope even more that it sparked new interest in mathematics and its role in almost everything that we depend on in our everyday lives. This episode of The Learning Podcast is a tribute to mathematics and a small attempt to demystify and democratize math. Contrary to the common view of math as a dry, static and technical subject, it's actually an area that's filled with people, history, social interaction, even entrepreneurial spirit. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll tune in again.